content warning for references to the Vietnam War, sexism, and the Haitian slave revolt. Hello and welcome to the Billy Shears Club. I'm Caleb Clark. I'm Madeline Campbell. Lately, there's been a little bit too much silliness on the Billy Shears Club. Making jokes, people from New Jersey, what are we becoming? And so, Madeline and I have put together a little cue of some real artistic songs so that you can be enlightened and bask in our knowledge, taste from the ambrosic flow of true art. Don't you say so, Madeline? I truly would. I feel honored that you would have me on for this episode of such great merit and import, truly. Of course, of course. And yes, for the first of our great pantheon of musics, let us go to that fabled time, the good old days of the late 1950s, with Cookie Cookie, Lend Me Your Comb, by Connie Stevens, and the beauty shop angel from Greece. What did you think of this to Jim of Darts. I thought it was a very compelling feminist critique of mid-century America, as a matter of fact. Really? What would be your thesis on such? It is a song that is a dialogue between uh, a male singer and a female singer. The female singer cannot adequately communicate her desires. She is trapped struggling to express what she truly wants or needs in such a way that she is understood. And yet, when she finally communicates her desire, it is ultimately ignored in a response that uses a word that in itself is utter nonsense, showcasing that Western patriarchy would rather destroy its own language than allow women an equal place at the table. Mm. That is the utmost. I dare say the ginchiest. Yes, I can truly appreciate, yes, that pulsing element between their two performances truly draw out something special. But in my personal view, I actually take more of a theatrical, almost Marlovin approach to the piece. See, here's, here's my thought process, if you will. See, the thing to me is that uh, Connie Stevens' character, the girlfriend, represents constant, undying, devoted love, as noted on how often she repeats kooky, kooky, lend me your comb, which is a, a, a coded message for let me kiss you. You see, it's doing that exact same phrase over and over again, never changing it in the slightest, that truly brings out how dedicated the love is. And in response, Ed Burns, the master singer, decides not to add a note of musicality to his performance, instead letting the words of a faddish youngster in the greaser era stand on their own. And so, in the intersection there, we see his callowness and youthfulness, at, due to a combination of simply his age, but also, as you say, the sexual politics of the decade. He is not able to understand this love, and thus, he has to be told outright the desire. Oh, yes. That's my thought. 
truly a compelling take on the Echo and Narcissus myth. Oh. <laughs> yes, exactly. I do. It is also interesting, since you bring up the feminist critique at Lynn, since in the original version, Connie Stevens was not actually credited, to the best of my knowledge. It was a Hepburn solo, which even adds more to this idea of the erasure of the feminine agency in the 1950s. Truly striking analysis. Thank you. You're welcome. The medium becomes the message, it would seem. Hmm, indeed, indeed. We are smart. Mm-hmm. Well, shall we go to our next medium and find the message there? Well, I think the message in the next one is fairly obvious, but of course. <laughs> of course, of course. Our next song is An Open Letter to My Son, uh, to my teenage son, excuse me, by Victor Lundberg. This is a uh, this is a song uh, from the late '60s that is informed by the countercultural offensives surrounding the Vietnam War and conventional American family values in general. And as such, I believe this song is a compelling Starship Troopers esque satire of extreme patriotism in the late 1960s, uh, as seen through the lens of changing conceptions of masculinity during this era, specifically by it being a letter from a father to a son who is struggling to find his place in this countercultural movement. Hmm. Really? Why That's else would you include the Battle Hymn of the Republic in the background? Hmm. That is a true point. There is certainly a string of jingoism within the song. I would agree there. Could you explain more about this combination of the patriot and the masculine that you see? Of course. So, in the 1960s, uh, there is, because of the countercultural movement, protesting the Vietnam War, the hippie movement, we're right around pre-Woodstock, I believe. And as a result, there are a lot of changing influences surrounding what is and isn't considered masculine and what is and isn't considered feminine, especially since we're dealing with an America that is after a lot of the waves of second wave feminism in the mid 1960s, which challenged a lot of preconceived notions about gender roles in American society. As a result, there is this broad milieu of questioning what precisely is and is not masculine, and very frequently conservative or reactionary forces contextualized masculinity in a warrior mentality, such as one who would travel to Vietnam during the war and not dodge the draft. As a result, I believe that this letter is in itself not only a satire of extreme militarism and devotion to one's country to the point of its superseding familial bond, but I also see it as an analysis of those shifting ideas about masculinity during the period. Hmm. This is very astute, especially with the John Wayne-like flat affectation of the speaker. Speaking of which, there's no saying this is a... Spoken word piece that actually got into the Billboard Top 10 for two weeks. Truly a remarkable feat for such a challenging performance. But yes, I can definitely see the one part where the speaker says that the 
teenage son's mother will forgive him because she is a woman, implying that the female is inferior in some moral regard. But my challenge to that, though, would be up until he begins to speak of the Vietnam War, when he appears to be perfectly all right with the advancement of teenage agency and the hippie cultural aesthetics, but does lose his cool, so to speak, as the kids say, once we reach the Vietnam War, which to me communicates. There is an element of the satire of what has been more and more... I'm actually not sure what if there's a catchy name for the phenomenon, but, you know, socially liberal, militarily imperial type programs, if you understand me, where he's willing to put up with all these challenges to where superficial aspects of life that only affect the day-to-day -day living around the home. But once the military ideas of the United States are challenged, he, as you say, reverts to reactionary masculinity and disowning of the child. So I think it's a very piercing view at how Americans and people in general can disconnect the within from the without of politics. Ah, yes, very astute. Uh, as oh, you were talking, you. I was going to contend that this is an example of a very common element of conservative slash right-leaning, maybe even arguably evangelical praxis, namely portraying oneself as intimate with the culture while simultaneously outside of it. It's quite all right to grow out your hair and to have a beard if you so choose. Abraham Lincoln had a beard after all, but it must be in a way that is deemed socially or morally acceptable by the hegemonic powers that be. Very, very interesting. A very keen point. You can especially draw it out by how much time uh, speaker Victor Lundberg uh, devotes to this song. Truly a staggering amount of time. Just full four minutes and 20 seconds of him simply speaking his mind over an orchestral rendition of the Battle of Belhim of the Republic played very slowly. A masterful stroke, to be sure. Of course. In itself, the lack of musicality is an intentional choice. This is not a time for womanly arts or for performances. It is a time for hard facts and hard words. The injection of the Battle Hymn of the Republic is itself a choice reflective of that militant masculinity. It is a battle hymn. Its original lyrics were describing the death of John Brown in the raid at Harper's Ferry. The entire song is oriented towards this masculine imperial ethos. Hmm. Yes. But you again see the subversion within it by, as you mentioned, it being dedicated to John Brown, a man who was very against some of the social ills of the time. And yes, yes, I can definitely see that point. Oh, it is obviously satirical. My nod to Starship Troopers earlier was quite intentional. Starship oh, Troopers yeah. itself is a analysis of that militant masculinity through a lens that highlights its own weaknesses and shortcomings. Of course a woman I would I speak, of course, of the... 
I speak, of course, of the 1990s movie directed by Paul Verhoeven rather than the original novel directed by Heinlein, as I find the movie improves on the themes presented in Heinlein's original work. Of course a woman would think that some fanciful notion about Starship Troopers being a satire, that is the most honest representation of a soul you can ever find in film. But enough of that. Yes. That's truly, truly a great piece of art. Uh, of there course, any other, of course. Were there any other points you wish to pontificate before concluding all this season? Not particularly, no. I think that we've highlighted the artistic merits of this song in sufficient detail. Indeed. Then let us proceed. Well, on the topic of political satires, let us now go to a little further down the road to a Gloria time for pastiche. The 1980s, and Lean on Me by Club Nouveau. You see, in the 1980s, there was a great swell of celebrity charities like Live Aid, Band Aid, Farm Aid. All the musicians were rallying together to try and pool their resources in order to better the world. And yet, it all became a great celebrity self-aggrandization that just relied on the feel-good sentiments of the world and nostalgia for the past and whatnot to generate enormous amounts of money, simply staggering. And so what Club Nouveau do here with Lean On Me is take the beloved Lean On Me by Bill Withers and make a sort of joke out of this tendency by taking song entirely about being kind to one another and making just the stupidest dance beat imaginable. Just the fakest choirs and pianos, just an awful sounding beat and putting it on top of all this cheery, happy-go-lucky love. It almost reaches don't worry, be happy levels of perfection. I truly love it. What did you think of this song? I actually interpreted this song through an economic lens. Hmm. What are the lyrics of Lean on Me, if not an act of working-class solidarity? Hmm. The production itself continues this trend and this analysis. It is a representation of the increasing automa uh, automation of the workforce. I draw here from, of course, that, uh, that other great song from the 1980s that I think arguably could have been included on this playlist, Mr. Roboto, from Styx's greatest album, Kilroy Was Here. Oh, yes. Omo arigato, Mr. Roboto. And so Lean on Me by Club Nouveau is not merely a re-rendition of a Bill Withers classic for a new era, but also an analysis of how workers and their solidarity among the working class must change and evolve as the workforce itself changes and evolves with increasing abilities of machinery. Ah. There is also, I found, a very interesting choice the very end, where they include some reggae? Oh, yes, yes, indeed. What brought this to your mind? I would like to contend that this is an obtuse but clear in reference to the Haitian slave revolt, the second revolution against colonial powers in the Western Hemisphere after, of course, our own revolution. Of course. That's the only thing that makes sense. 
It surely couldn't be a mindless cash grab off everyone who loved Bill Withers. It must be about the Haitian Absolutely not. It's a subliminal encouragement of workers to revolt, for what is a worker if not a slave to their capitalist overlords? True. And that's why they repeat the phrase, we be jamming. We be jamming to overthrow... I see. It is not I be jamming, it is we be jamming, brothers! We be jamming. We be jamming nothing to lose but our chains. Those and horns. some funky, fresh, synthesized beats. Yes, the off-key horns are simply tuned so poorly in order to more clearly call to action the ears of the working class who will look up from the treasury to see, oh, a terrible song is telling me to rise up, of course. Of course, indeed. Of course. Shall we move to the next clearly anti-capitalist song on our little list of the greatest hits of post-1950s music? Oh, if, certainly. And for our next little number... Truly, we are no strangers to love. You know the rules, and so do I. Indeed, but what are the rules in an increasingly atomized world? Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up is a compelling countercultural strike against the increasing isolating forces of 1980s and beyond consumer culture. As a matter of fact, the promises he makes in the song are fundamentally anti-capitalist, based on things that any person may fundamentally provide to another, rather than his economic status or his strength as a consumer. He is not promising to buy the woman in this song anything, but instead he is promising faithfulness, the one thing he truly owns and can truly give. Ah, of course. Beautiful. Yes, a very deep analysis. This, And this, of course, will explain why it remains so beloved, unironically and unequivocally in the modern age, the themes of alienation and a desire for human connection resonate more and more in our increasingly technological and anti-worker world. Truly, your mind staggers. Out of the box. You flatter me. Yes, yes. Well, I think I have not more to say than that on the subject. Uh, have you any more to say have on this? I sent you into Richard? silence. I'd rather not say that. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I'm sure you'll be able to repay me with some astute analysis of a song later that I will admit I was not able to find a particularly strong throughline with, as you specialize in that genre a bit more than I, but I must not spoil the surprise. Oh, of course, of course. Mm. Our minds all go feeble sometimes. Mm. Yes. Well, shall we break for Earl Grey tea and some buns before we proceed? Oh yes, I shall return in my finest dressing gown. Uh, and I shall in mine. We shall bid thee adieu until the next time we meet upon the Billy Shears Club. <laughs>